Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello, and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. Today, we're looking at rising tensions in the South China Sea, above all between the US and China. Joining me on the line is Jeff Dyer, now our correspondent in Washington, before that our bureau chief in Beijing and author of a recent book on US-China relations. And on the line from Singapore is James Crabtree, our contributing editor, who recently attended the annual Asia-Pacific Security Conference known as the Shangri-La Dialogue. Jeff, it's my impression that tensions between the US and China have been rising pretty steadily over the last year. Is that fair, do you think? Oh, I think that's absolutely fair to say. I mean, you've had a couple of main things going on. One is that China has been going full ahead with this plan to reclaim land, to build these man-made islands in the South China Sea, particularly in the Spratly Islands, which are a group of islands further south in the South China Sea that are disputed by Vietnam, the Philippines, and, and a couple of other countries. In recent months, China has been slowly putting some military facilities on some of these islands, bits of radar, there have been a few planes that have been landing. And this has really made people realize that the long-term plan here is to build up these facilities facilities into a permanent military presence that China can use to monitor the South China Sea. And then parallel to that, there is a, a very important international ruling that's about to come out from a slightly obscure UN tribunal in The Hague, but where the Philippines has challenged some of the legal claims that China has made to some of these islands in the South China Sea. And that's going to be a very clarifying moment because it's quite probable, according to most experts, that this tribunal will turn around and say that a lot of Chinese claims are not really based on anything in international law. So that's going to be another very important clarifying moment as well. Now, James, you attended the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore, where you have senior Chinese military people and senior Americans and lots of people from the region in general. Did some of that tension filter through in the dialogue? Absolutely, yes. This is what everyone was looking out for. The dialogue has a certain rhythm to it where the Americans begin on the first day, in this case with the Secretary of Defense, Ashton Carter, sort of slightly reading the riot act to China and saying, on the one hand, that they hope that they'll begin to behave themselves after having doing the things that Jeff just talked about. But if they don't, then there will be unspecified consequences. And then at the end of the conference, a senior figure from the Chinese military turned up and basically said that China had very little intention of behaving itself and that it was planning to ignore the tribunal in The Hague that Jeff mentioned. And the air of the conference was exactly as he described, that there is a sense that America and China are fighting with one another diplomatically and that it's quite difficult to imagine a scenario in which strategic relations in this part of the world in the South China Sea begin to improve anytime soon. And what was the mood of the people who weren't Americans or Chinese, the other Southeast Asians and so on? Are they more or less on one side or the other? It's a mixed picture. America has a number of treaty allies and other friendly nations in the region. On the quiet, they're very supportive of America being tougher. But in public, they tend not to say anything too bullish because they fear Chinese repercussions. But there are quite a number of countries around Southeast Asia who are closer to China. And so one of the things people are looking out for when this ruling from The Hague comes is will the other smaller Southeast Asian nations, those that are member of the grouping called ASEAN, will they come together and basically condemn China for ignoring the ruling or will they be divided? And 
most analysts suggest that China has been quite clever in dividing this grouping so that it will be very difficult for the smaller nations in Southeast Asia, most of whom are alarmed at China's militarization of the South China Sea and in general at its rising presence throughout the region. It will be quite difficult for them to come together as a group and say anything at all. Now, Jeff, James just used the phrase that China and America are fighting and then added diplomatically. Obviously, the big question is, given the military tensions between the two and the fact the Americans have now, I think on three occasions, sent naval missions past these artificial islands, is that actually a danger of a military clash? There is a small but genuine risk. It's not that the other side would want to actually start a fight. But the problem is that if you get two militaries moving ever closer to each other, that you hit some sort of accident that could spiral into something more serious. So, for instance, within the last month, the Pentagon has twice complained now that Chinese fighter jets got very close to some of its surveillance aircraft travelling through the area. Uh, and there was a famous incident uh, near Taiwan in 2001 where uh, something similar happened. The Chinese jet ended up crashing and the pilot died. And the U.S. plane had to then land on Hainan Island in southern China, and that created a very, very tense diplomatic standoff. There is a risk that something like that happens, something miscalculated somewhere where someone just gets a bit too aggressive, a bit too pushy, and that then spirals into something much more dramatic. And I gather because of those risks that before the Americans embarked on these naval missions, there was a big discussion between the Pentagon and the White House about how aggressive to be, and that if anything, the Pentagon is a bit disappointed that the Americans haven't been even more confrontational. The Pentagon has wanted the US to be doing a little bit more on the South China Sea, to be a bit more in China's face, to, to show its presence a bit more. But for the White House, they're trying to manage a whole series of different interactions with China, where some of which have competition involved, some of which involve cooperation. Just after, for instance, the first of those patrols last October, the US and China had to work very closely together at the Paris Climate Change Conference. And so the White House is constantly trying to balance these types of issues. In some cases, it wants to work very closely with China. In other cases, it's trying to push back very hard against China. And it's just trying to get that balance right. James, I mean, you said, as far as you can gather, that the Chinese will just ignore this ruling at The Hague. So in that sense, is it that important? Can they just brush it off and then things continue more or less as they were? The idea that the Chinese are going to ignore it is now widely assumed. And the the question that no one is really sure of is what, therefore, will America do? Will it be successful in its attempt to corral countries around the region, to condemn the Chinese, to embarrass them, to isolate them? And what then might that in turn do in generating a Chinese response? The, The pessimistic scenario is that that might actually force the Chinese to further escalate their military activities in order to demonstrate that they had not, in fact, been affected by this ruling and that they were going to plough on regardless. The more fundamental problem, I think, is that the two sides are backing themselves into a corner. Both base their actions on a sort of inviolable principle, where for the Chinese under the government of Xi Jinping, this all boils down to national sovereignty and the fact that the Chinese have what they view as a long-standing historical claim to much more of the South China Sea than their neighbours are comfortable with. And given the temperature of rising nationalism domestically in China, it's very difficult even for non-democratic regime to back down in any way or be seen to compromise. But America in its own way has now set up another sort of inviolable principle, which is the principle of freedom of navigation, where America and its closer allies will now trot out the line that there's an absolute right for these countries to fly and sail wherever international law allows. And so you have this clash of absolutes, which makes it much more difficult for the two sides to come together and find some sort of face-saving compromise, given that they've set up two sets of principles from which compromise is now very difficult. 
So, Jeff, how do you see this clash of absolutes playing out? Because on the one hand, as you say, neither side wants a confrontation and they'll probably avoid it in the short to medium term. And yet neither side seems prepared to back down. So how is this resolved? Or is it just a sort of new Cold War in the South China Sea? I think it plays out over the course of a decade or two and it really comes down to the perception of who actually controls these waters. What some of China's neighbours fear and what the US fears is that these military facilities in the South China Sea will really give China the ability to coerce its neighbours, give the impression that they have no choice but to deal with China on Chinese terms. What the US hopes is that by doing these kinds of operations, these patrols in the South China Sea, they will show that they have a constant presence there. And also what's been happening is the US has been beefing up some of its alliances in the region, so that now has a, a semi-paramount military presence in the Philippines. Uh, it's talking with Vietnam about having a much greater cooperation with Vietnam, even some kind of military presence in Vietnam. And so that will be a kind of counterbalance to the Chinese to give everyone the impression, give the Chinese the impression that they don't control the South China Sea. So a lot of it's going to come down to a lot less about any sort of diplomatic compromise, but really where do people think the control lies, which of the two sides has the upper hand. And if the rest of the region starts to feel that the Chinese have the upper hand, they will inevitably feel that they have to do a deal, they have to compromise with China, and they have to, to some extent, obey some of China's demands for the region. The rest of the region's attitude is obviously crucial, as Jeff says, and unpredictable because, as you say, the Philippines is at the centre with this court case, but they've also just elected a real wild card in the case of President Duterte. How much do you think his arrival and his kind of rather Trump-like rhetoric could shake things up in rather unpredictable ways? He won his election a couple of weeks ago and said various different things in the campaign, which suggested that he could come down on either side of this. I mean, it could go either way. I mean, there's a positive scenario. The Chinese say that they do not see the legitimacy of this international court, whose legitimacy comes from something called the UN law of the sea, and that they would like to sort this out bilaterally. They would also quite like to improve relations with the new guy in charge in the Philippines. So it's not entirely impossible that they could get this ruling from The Hague, the Philippines wouldn't rub their noses in it, and then the Chinese would try and bilaterally come up with a rather more friendly set of relations, and some of these tensions might slightly disappear. I mean, if China decides to be nice to the Philippines, it has the financial muscle to go and you know improve relations. So I think a lot depends on how Beijing conceives of its own self-interest and how Xi Jinping decides that he wants to play it. It's certainly possible, although I suspect unlikely, that you could see the new government in the Philippines actually improving things in the region. Finally, Jeff, I mean, obviously, this is also an American presidential election year. How does that play into things? Because my impression is that although the Chinese are not terribly fond of Barack Obama's pivot to Asia, they're even more wary of Hillary Clinton, who they see as a bit of a hawk. On the other hand, Donald Trump is a complete wild card and has talked of Japan and South Korea being encouraged even to get nuclear weapons. So how does the presidential election play into this US-Chinese relationship? The Chinese are very suspicious of Hillary Clinton. They see her as the person who, in the first term of the Obama administration, changed the policy, forced the White House to adopt a much more aggressive policy towards China. I'm not sure that's necessarily true, but I think that's quite a strong perception in Beijing of how things worked out. And they see her as someone who's very hawkish towards China and who they're not particularly keen to see in the White House. But it's very unclear what they make about Donald Trump because it's very unclear what to make of Donald Trump, especially in his policies towards Asia. I mean, in some ways he talks complementarily about China, but he's also talked about starting a trade war. He's even said things about the South China Sea that were quite provocative. Yet at the same time, as you mentioned, 
mentioned, he's said things about Japan and South Korea about substantially weakening those alliances, which would be very favourable to China. But at this stage, it's really hard to get a handle on what a Trump administration would actually mean for Asia. I mean, his statements uh, he's made so far are often quite contradictory. He's been backtracking on some of them, particularly towards Japan in recent days. It's just very hard to say what he actually means and what he actually would try to do. Hillary, probably at this stage the likelier winner, is seen as a bit of a hawk in Beijing. So finally, what is the reading in Washington amongst the China watchers of what Xi Jinping is up to? Do they think that he's moved into a new phase? Are they wary of a more aggressive Chinese foreign policy? They see him as someone who's more in command of the military, much more command of the system, and is just much more willing to take risks in the way that he stands up to the U.S. and stands up for what they perceive to be Chinese interests. It's not necessarily that he's doing things that are dramatically different to what were being done before, certainly in the, the four or five years before he took power. But I think that the, the key difference that China watchers in the U.S. would say is his willingness, his preparedness to take some risks in the way that he pursues those interests and pursues those demands. And the way that they have been militarizing these man-made islands in the South China Sea is a precise example of that. Much more willingness for brinkmanship on the Chinese part than we've seen in the past. So we'll leave things with that thought on brinkmanship. I'm sure we'll return to this subject in the coming weeks. But for the moment, thank you very much to Jeff Dyer in Washington, to James Crabtree in Singapore. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.